Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay. See, it's catching up. Hello, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is another virtual First Tuesday show. Yes, it is. <laughs> we, uh, we've really been missing everybody. And uh, thank you to all of those who are joining us today online. Uh, ben and I will get rolling with our guests in a second. Uh, we have a show planned today about what exactly is going on with Chicago's school reopenings and the seemingly never-ending showdown between uh, the Chicago Teachers Union and uh, Mary Lori Lightfoot. Uh, but just want to tell everybody that while you are, um, as you guys get settled in, what you see on your screen here, you'll see our faces, obviously, then our guests as they come on. And in the top, when you put your mouse over the uh, the main live stream, live stream screen, you can see in the top right-hand corner, there's a little word bubble with, um, the chat function. So if you'd like to ask questions and participate in discussion today, just click that uh, chat bubble and then you can type your name and ask questions. We're gonna first talk a bit with our guests and then we're gonna take questions from the audience. So I'll be monitoring the chat and um, I'm in here now as well. So thank you everybody for joining us. Okay, uh, Ben. We uh, we've got a we've got a hell of a show for everyone today. Are you are you ready to do this? Yes, I'm ready. And the first time we did this, the virtual show, uh, if you remember, we were both at the hideout. I was I think I was on the stage. You were upstairs in the green room. Uh, but this time we're not doing that. Uh, first of all, a whole bunch of snow fell, and who wants to go to the hideout? And second of all, uh, Maya become even more. Uh, just lodged in my house. I'm just sharing this with you. It's, it's like each passing day of this pandemic, I'm that much more uh, uh, concerned about leaving the house. So I, I probably would have gone to the hideout if 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 it wasn't all the snow. Or, and uh, if you were, uh, I actually, if you were in town to do it, but, but yeah, uh, I'm so, lodged in my house that I'm in my parents' house. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I'm up in my attic, my famous attic. Uh, that I talk so much about, and Maya's at a, some undisclosed location uh, somewhere in the country, which I'm not quite sure where she is. Yeah, uh, I'm in upstate New York uh, visiting my folks while I'm on this furlough from the reader, which, by the way, good job, good good news uh, is I think that we won't have to do these furloughs for much longer. So thank you to everybody who's continued to support the reader. And before we bring in our guests, just promote your book. Okay, just oh. take take what Tracy and Kara would really want me to do that. Let's give a this is basically we're really helping the hideout here with this and thank yeah. everybody who shows up because uh, God bless the hideout. They need the help. And I always say the hideout put up a put a lefty like me on stage. It gave me the opportunity uh, to have conversation that I think is just 
kind of unique for Chicago. So got a lot of love for the hideout. We do this for the hideout. We also have tremendous love for my beloved and Maya's beloved Chicago readers. So talk about your book and promote that a little bit, Maya. Yeah, so I had uh, the readers doing collections of staff writers at uh, kind of best work. And you have one coming out soon as well, Ben. Um, but mm -hmm. mine dropped in December and uh, it's, called, it's called A Home in Chicago. It's a collection of my stories on housing issues going back to 2014. And uh, you can find um, our colleague Mike Sula and Lior Galil's books as well. Um, all of this is at chicagoreader.com slash store. So uh, yeah, so I think we should uh, go ahead and, and bring in uh, our guests. Uh, I'm sure people are anxious to hear what they have to say. So today we've got Yana Kunichov. Uh, she is a Chopik Chicago education reporter. And we also have Gregory Pratt, who is a City Hall reporter at the Chicago Tribune. We decided to do this as an all-journalist show because there's a lot of information out there, there's a lot of politics flying around, and we just need things broken down kind of as, as, as clearly as possible um, for a, a diverse audience. So let's make sure, okay, can uh, our guests are here, you guys uh, can hear us and we can hear you, I think. And uh, yeah, so I think let's start with Yana. Why don't, can you just tell us in our audience where things are at with school reopening in Chicago and why have things become so contentious? Why are the teachers on the verge of a strike? Why is the mayor going out, you know, with steam coming out of her ears every other day at these press conferences? How is it that things have become so tense and what does this mean for children's education in the city? Yes, definitely. Um, okay, there's a lot here. So I just want people to sort of bear with me. I'm gonna try and do this in a compact way, but there's a, there's a lot going on. So there's a labor dispute right now between Chicago Public Schools, the mayor's office is involved um, in the negotiations in some form and in the decision-making as well, because it's a mayoral control district and the Chicago Teachers Union over school reopening. Um, so the big question is, what is it gonna look like when Chicago reopens schools? What teachers are going to go in and what are the safety measures that that's gonna look like? So those are questions right now for schools around the country and have kind of sort of raised existential questions about what school looks like in this moment. What's made it such a big deal here is, um, just stepping back a little bit, is first of all, the Chicago Teachers Union is a union that organizes under this common good principle. They are not afraid of a fight. I think they're often ready for one to do what they feel is right for their members. And I think also to meet kind of broader social needs um, of which COVID has obviously brought up so many. Since Lori Lightfoot became mayor almost two years ago, there have been kind of ongoing clashes between the teachers union and the mayor and the strike, I think now about a year and a half ago, was kind of a really big example of that and just different opinions about who gets to make what kind of decisions about what schools look like. And that was an intense 11 days, right? But the union came out and won um, a lot of changes in the classroom. So coming back to today, Chicago has been trying to reopen schools um, essentially since the fall, has not been able to for a bunch of complicated reasons and finally essentially said like, okay, guys, we're doing this. They set a date. They said a small number of teachers would come in. The union said, hey, hold up. You don't have an agreement with us about what any of this is going to look like. We're not going to just walk into a classroom. Um, obviously, this brings up like a lot of bigger questions about what schools have been like before, how clean, how <laughs> warm they are, how much things function. 
Um, and so Chicago Public Schools tried to open. The union said, if you move forward, we are going to ask our teachers to not go into classes, which is what they did. And then they also said, if you lock our teachers out of virtual classes, um, we're going to go on a strike. So there's kind of this mounting tensions as negotiations have been going on almost every day for weeks. Um, and then just yesterday, the school district called a uh, essentially a cooling off period, which means negotiations are still ongoing. But these um, kind of bigger threats of the district locking teachers out, which means that students who are remote would get no learning versus or the union going on a strike, um, which would also, I think, like create a big impasse has is sort of off the table, but only for 48 hours. So we're 24 hours into that period. So and what are some of the major key issues that this this the CPS uh, mayor side of the table is not in agreement with with the teachers union? Like I know one of them is that the teachers want testing every week for for all the staff and the city is not willing to provide that, right? Yeah, so there's uh, the big issues, to my sense of what the biggest sticking points are right now is um, vaccination. So the union in December put forward, a, like when it became clear that there'd be a vaccine coming out soon, said we want all, all in-school staff to have the opportunity to get the vaccine. Um, that has, the, essentially the city has said, like, that's a great, like, nice idea, but a, we don't have enough vaccines, and B, we're not going to put you ahead of like grocery workers and other folks. Um, I think some of that, some of the issue there is also that um, the city, the school district, and the city have said that schools with mitigation measures are safe. So I think saying that you have to have a vaccine before you can walk in a school, I think might bring into question just how safe are schools right now. So there's that element of the discussion. The other big thing is accommodations. Um, so I think it's like, we have to remember teachers have been working at home for nine months now, um, essentially, and becoming, becoming essential workers, I think going out has like led a lot of people to be really worried. A lot of people also themselves have health conditions, they have family members with health conditions, and they are in a dispute with the district over how many people they're going to allow to work remotely. Um, the other thing that I just want to like give for context is that not all Chicago students want to go back for in-person learning. It's about 20% of the wow. district has said, or sorry, the K, K through eight essentially has said that they will return for in-person learning. So it's a portion of students that schools would be reopened for. So, okay. 80% of the K through eight students, I do not want to come back. Yeah, the parents don't want their students to come back. So, Yana, essentially, uh, we're at this point. Uh, I'm just <laughs> for 20 percent of the kids. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're right. I think the 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 city and Chicago Public Schools has said families have to have an option. They've said remote learning isn't working. They've talked about uh, students not showing up. They've talked about like high, um, like high failure rates in like math and in reading, particularly from Latino and black students. So I think they see in-person learning as a way to address some of those issues. Hmm. But if the p kids don't show up for the classrooms, what's the point? I, mean, I think that the big question that has come up, I think that has been really interesting has been, will remote learning look different? So even for students who are going in because of the pod system, most of them will be going in two days a week. What's the pod system? 
the pod system is um, a way for uh, the district to have students in relatively small groups in classes. So there's kind of like an A group that would go Monday and Tuesday and a B group that would go Thursday and Friday with a deep cleaning in between. Um, and that's for K through eight. So it's a little bit different for other grades. But um, yeah, essentially, so students that are back are at some point gonna be doing remote learning. Chicago also wants teachers to do something called simultaneous teaching, which means they would be instructing students in the classroom and remotely, which also means that, uh, you know, I've heard teachers say that a lot of what students are doing now is going to look really similar. So the question that's come up and not actually really been answered is, will if remote learning is failing or not working or leaving so many students behind, um, how is that going to look different moving ahead? And who are the 20% of the students or the families who want who want to return to in school in person? Is there my understanding is there kind of there's like a race and class component here. Yeah, there's definitely a race and class component. I think it's which I think there always always is in Chicago schools. I think it's useful to remember that most of the students are not white students. Most of them are black and Latino students all across the city. Um, so just I would put that there. But I, I it is definitely a disproportionate number of white families. So white families are 11 percent of the district. And I think maybe. I, I should check, actually, I can do that. Twenty. About, I think around 25% families that are going back and they have, of the families who initially said they would go back, chosen at a higher rate, uh, have, a, have at a higher rate actually come back. Um, so the conversation those last few weeks has definitely, um, has def there have been a lot of parents that have come out kind of saying, I need a voice. And I think a lot of those are um, folks that are professionals. I think those are folks that, um, who feel that remote learning hasn't been working for them. But I, I, you know, I will also say that there are, I'm sure there are families that are coming back that have needs for childcare, or I think for special education students in particular, remote learning has really, really um, kind of left them out of getting a lot of the services that are usually provided in school. And that most districts around the country haven't found a way to actually provide, provide through remote learning. I just want to point out that uh, Greg Pratt at Chicago Tribune uh, had joined us, but some kind of technical difficulties having. So as a result, uh, he's not part of this uh, conversation. He'll be back. He'll be back. Uh, he's figuring things out as we speak. He's like splicing tape or something uh, to make it work, uh, showing his engineering techniques. Uh, and I'll probably hold off on some of the political questions for when he gets back, because I really love to talk about the political uh, uh, situation here. Yeah, I've been reading you. Um, Pretty religiously uh, over the uh, the last couple of weeks, so I want to thank you for the great work you've done. Just uh, kind of like just laying out, as Maya was putting it, like the union's position on issue A and the Board of Education or CPS's uh, position on uh, on that and that issue, you know, and what's the difference uh, between the two. And so, I guess I should ask you this: You followed this every step of the way. And here we are with this cooling off period where supposedly we're close uh, to a solution. What could, in your humble opinion, what does uh, the Chicago public school system, Jess Jackson and Lori Lightfoot, have to offer uh, the Ch Chicago Teachers Union to get teachers to say, OK, we'll agree uh, to uh, come back to the classroom? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that they've already moved forward on that um, I think the union has been asking for, for example, are health and safety committees at each school level that can make decisions about um, either quarantining pause or even closing an entire school if there's a lot of cases. So I think there's an element of, um, I guess, like school democracy around health decisions. That is something that the union has been pushing for. So I think there's some of that. Um, I think there will probably have to be some movement on vaccines and accommodations. And so the district has said, particularly on accommodations, which is how many teachers will be able to work remotely, that if every teacher that they that asked to work remotely, either for themselves or for a high-risk family member was given the opportunity to do that, they couldn't staff the schools. Um, but also all teachers have been asked to come back regardless of whether their kids are remote or not. So what I'm expecting to see is some sort of more creative staffing that allows teachers who have mostly remote students or maybe all remote students to work from home and then maybe shift that in the future. I think they will also probably need some sort of promise on vaccinations. That has been, um, I think, just like a really big issue, like several people have described as the hunger games of teachers trying to get vaccines. And so even though there's obviously supply issues, I think they will have to give some sort of clear timeline. You said something that I'd love to follow up on. And uh, uh, Greg has rejoined us. Can you hear us now, Greg? Yeah, and I feel like one of those guys who shows up for a show and gets hammered before he goes on and then he can perform. <laughs> So I apologize for that. I don't know what that was all about. Uh, that's all right. I, I I said I already said explained to people that you were like, splicing tape to make it work. So great job. Uh, you have a future uh, in engineering. Uh, before I I, I told people that I was going to hold off on some of the uh, political questions, the political conversation. To you joined us, Greg. Greg covers City Hall uh, for the Chicago Tribune, and uh, so we were going through with Yana the some of the differences between the teachers and uh, CPS. What's keeping them from reaching some sort of an agreement on this? Uh, and Yana, you said something that was very interesting. I, I made a note of it. I want to come back to it before we bring Greg in and talk about politics. And you said that, God, you're like reading my mind. As uh, the teacher's been out for nine months, with every passing day, it gets that much harder to leave the shelter of, of their house and go face the pandemic. I feel much the same way uh, in my little beloved attic here. Uh, I know one day, Yana, I will leave the shelter of my house uh, and go back into the work world, but I'm not ready for it yet. Um, is our, explain, are teachers going through a similar psychological process, like, like the one I'm going through, where it's just harder uh, to leave the nest with each passing day? Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, I think so. I think there's two dynamics right now for teachers. So I think one of them is that, yes, after sheltering in place for a long time, I think it is hard to leave. I think that um, there are a lot of teachers who are worried for their own safety. And I think also, um, you know, again, the way I've been thinking about it in my head is they are sort of changing the class of worker that they are, not like actually, but essentially they're entering a new type of work experience in the pandemic world. And the reality is that being an essential worker in America for the last nine months is, has been like off. I would say it's been awful. I think like people don't have a lot of protection. I think people are dying. Um, you know, people are getting sick. I think that is a real reality. And um, I think whether or not, uh, you know, I think that is separate from like what their schools might look like. I think teachers are really experiencing the psychological pressure of that. I think the other thing that's happening is that even before, um, even before the pandemic, 
teachers put up, you know, both in contract negotiations and I think at the school level fought a lot around the cleanliness of their schools, like basic things like soap in bathrooms for their schools. And so I think um, some of the some of that fight is making them really nervous about what it will actually look like at the school level um, for them when they go back. Well, Greg, I'd yeah. like to bring you in on this uh, and uh, ask you a question that I've been wrestling with uh, on my podcast a lot. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Um, Yana just went through all the differences between the teachers and uh, CPS. Uh, and one point that I keep talking about on my show is, uh, is the issue of the mixed message. And uh, for so long in the city of Chicago, we've been told by Mayor Lori Lightfoot, we've been told by Governor Pritzker how uh, dangerous the pandemic is, is how we should take all these precautions, social distancing, wear masks, et cetera. If you're not an essential worker, don't go out, limit your time at a grocery store, get in, get out, et cetera, and so forth. And now uh, we're being told, well, actually it is safe uh, to go to school, relatively safe, safe enough uh, to put aside those concerns we've had. And we've had like the, the health commissioner come out and say, oh, it's safe. And for an old geezer like me, it's been a hard thing to turn this tugboat around uh, in a small harbor and just come and to accept that that there is this change. Politically, in your humble opinion, Greg, how do you think people in Chicago are viewing this? Do you think they buy into the notion that it is safe uh, to go back to school? I think, you know, I wish there was some opinion polling about it. But from what I see anecdotally, I do think there's there's conflicting thoughts where there are people who say, I've been out, I've been working. There's been people who've been working. There are people, I talked to some people who are very pro-union, who are in fact uh, very strongly with union, who say, well, there have been people inside the school buildings this whole time. And so, the, you know, they, they figured it out. And so teachers should be able to figure it out. That said, I do think that there are, um, I think people have a lot of sympathy for teachers. One thing is, is people, you know, you send your kid to school and that's, you're entrusting the most important people in your life to these strangers who educate them and nurture them. And so when people, when the Chicago teachers union goes out and they say, we're scared, we're concerned, we don't think there's enough safe safeguards, the ventilation sucks anyway. Um, and now we're concerned about it. Uh, because the ventilation will kill you if it sucks. Whereas if it doesn't suck, you know, in nor if it sucks during normal times, you're just sweating a lot, which as a CPS grad myself, I know, uh, you know, through personal experience, right? Not the best ventilation system. So, so um, I think people are generally pretty sympathetic to the teachers while also um, I do think it, it goes within reason. I think people do see, that significant chunks of our society have reopened. They'd like to see see schools reopen. I do think that in general, people would like to see that with the caveat, and it's an important caveat, that they want it to be safe and they want the teachers to feel safe. And if the teachers don't feel safe, I do think people are willing to give them significant latitude. I don't think people say, oh, you know, CTU is just trying to sandbag the mayor, which is what, you know, some people in, in that camp would say, I think people genuinely see the good faith concerns that teachers have. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, what is, because as Yana mentioned, we were talking before about how 80% of the families 
don't want to go back into in-person learning right now. So this entire rigmarole is happening over providing in-person learning for 20% of the of the families in CPS. And it seems like, I mean, to me, just watching the 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 the, the tone around these conversations, like Mayor Lori Lightfoot is so I mean, I find her to be even more aggressive and kind of harsh in her public stance about this issue than I even think she was during the strike in uh, in 2019. And so I wonder, you know, given what you're saying, like that, it seems like in general in in the in in the city community, people have uh, kind of some solidarity with the teachers union and and um, and kind of identify with what is worrying the teachers. Why is the mayor? you know, seems to be hell bent on presenting this as like kind of the teacher sandbagging or somehow trying to demand, uh, make unfair demands or win political points over this. Um, you know, is it just, is it the kind of advisors who she has around her? Uh, who's who's doing the kind of whispering in her ear around this issue? Well, just about anything with Mayor Lori Lightfoot is the mayor, you know, for better or for worse, she is not necessarily somebody who, a committee of three people is set aside and they say this is the path of least resistance or this is the easiest way to do it, which is what a standard politician would do. Uh, you know, the mayor is, is very much um, her own strategist. You know, she does have advisors, obviously. She does have people she listens to. But, you know, Mayor Lori Lightfoot does not decide um, we're going to reopen schools because some people told her, hey, this is the best way to do it, or this is the this is the politically expedient way for better or for worse. She's, you know, um, you know, she's 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 very, very uh, and she would say it and she has said it, that she's very opinionated, she has strong views and she advocates for them, right? So the good faith uh, explanation for um, one one key thing and it's a very real thing is that the mayor is concerned about kids falling behind. I think she has genuine concerns about that. I think that's real. I don't think she's saying that just for the cameras. And you know, a lot of kids are falling behind. And that that's that's very profoundly uh, serious. And then, um, but the other part of it is personality, where she feels, you know, I'm not going, you know, um, she's getting egged on by some people that, you know, CTU is bullying you around and pushing you around. And Mayor Lightfoot is somebody who says, I'm not going to be pushed around. And so you get, um, you you know, but she, she absolutely, uh, from covering her and from talking to people in her world and just from listening to her, she's concerned about students learning. But she also has a personality where if somebody is trying to make her do something, uh, she says, well, you know, um, I didn't get, actually, she has a, she has a thing she once said to me in an interview that sticks with me whenever I'm thinking about why she does the thing she says. She says, I didn't get anywhere in, in life by letting people walk all over me. And that's her attitude. But she seems to, it's like she seems to see any pushback sometimes, I almost wonder, as people trying to walk over her. Um, Yana, do you, do you want to jump in on this as well? Yeah, I mean, I just I wanted to say that, you know, we're talking about sort of the, the level of um, like tension and vitriol at the high level. And I think that the discussion of whether to reopen schools has a lot of those same elements like at the ground level. You know, um, I have talked to parents, a parent who 
um, has sent their child back to a high school. They're in kind of an intensive special needs program whose child is autistic and was kind of really backsliding and has been told, um, you know, you want teachers to die. And that's why you're sending your kid back. You know, I, th I think that there is just like an amazing, um, I think that there is like a lot of um, anger happening around this conversation. So I, f I feel a lot of what we're seeing at the high level reflected like between within schools, within the school community writ large, I think between educators who have chosen to go back um, versus those who I think are staying staying out um, as kind of part, part of this broader action. So I think the question of do we need to go back, A, and then B, when and under what conditions? Like every stage of that has the level of um, the level of tension on the ground that we're seeing that we're seeing kind of reflected in this bigger conversation between uh, the board of Ed, the mayor and the union. You know, there's also the reality, uh, I don't want to address this to Gregory, get his thoughts on this. The reality, uh, I think I saw you sort of mention this in a tweet, actually, uh, Greg, that uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot defeated Tony Preckwinkle to get elected in the first place, and the union very strongly endorsed Tony Preckwinkle. Uh, I strongly urge them not to do that, but whatever, who listens to me? Uh, so Lori Lightfoot came to the hideout, Greg, and told us, you may have been in the audience watching, I don't know, she's I told us, I, you were there, I, I will hold no grudges against Stacey Davis Gates. I'm going to shake her hand when it's all over. This is just politics. And my read of the situation is that she has borne a grudge against the union from the get-go uh, and has not just been like a good winner. She won. She clobbered their candidate. She was the most popular. I voted for her. That's how much she clobbered her, their candidate. She was the most popular mayor, I want to say, Greg, in terms of just winning an election, probably going back to Daly's early uh, elections. She beat Tony Preckwinkle like Daly used to beat nobodies, which is yes. remarkable. That is really well put. Uh, not that Bobby Rush is a nobody because in 1999, whatever. But your point's well taken. But I just felt that hostility. She never dropped the, the grudge. You understand what I'm saying, Greg? And uh, that's just my read of it. Uh, and her her advisors, her aides tell me, Ben, you don't understand the union. All they want to do is get revenge. Uh, all they want to do is beat us because they lost. They haven't got over that. That's what so, people in the know are telling you. Yeah, that's what the Lori's people, people have been telling are, me. Lori's people are telling you about the teachers. the teachers union yeah. they tell me all kinds of nasty things about the teachers union they've stopped trying to tell me because i don't believe them anymore but they've been telling me this stuff for a long time so greg what i'm asking you is your thoughts you you get to watch uh, all these players and you have a sense of kind of what is pushing them and motivating them do you think that there's still that this is a very real a driving force, bad feeling left over from a mayoral election in 19, well, 1999, excuse me, 2019? It's impossible to to take out those bad feelings. Yeah, of course. It's um, And, you know, to be fair, uh, um, when the mayor's people tell you that, you know, CTU is out to get her or CTU is, is mean uh, or whatever it is that they tell you that you just said, um, CTU is not her friends. CTU leadership is not her friends. That's a fair perspective for the mayor to have. They are 
not, you know, Jesse Sharkey and Stacey Davis Gates are not her friends. That said, um, the mayor does hold a grudge. The mayor is, uh, you know, the, her personality is she remembers the people who screwed her over, who tried to screw her over, who sort of screwed her over, who she perceived screwed her over. And she she catalogs it. She holds on to it. Um, it's 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 um, it's very real. And it, it you can't escape that. So, you know, are they as out to get her as uh, as she thinks? Uh, that's that's for someone else to decide, you know, but but they're they're not her friends. And she's right to understand who her friends are. You know, every politician knows who their friends are and who their enemies are and who their frenemies are, because they have those as well. Um, but you know, the mayor does, you know, you can see it anytime she, anytime the notion of CTU comes up, I thought it was really telling when, um, Mary DeFino, who is an activist with CTU was out campaigning against judge Tuman, and the mayor rushed over and got in her face and put her finger in her face and kept saying, your union is wrong. Uh, if that doesn't tell you where the feelings are and you know, I don't know. For what those, just just for some context for those who are watching who may not remember this story, that there was a, a very rare political, you know, kind of camp, grassroots campaign to oust the Cook County judge last election cycle. Uh, Michael Tuman, who's been reversed in his decisions by appellate courts a bunch of times and who's been a particularly harsh judge as he he's presided over the juvenile um, criminal court division. And so. This has happened like a handful of times in the last few years where groups kind of mobilized to try to get, you know, get voters to understand judicial elections better and to not vote to retain certain judges who have uh, a not so great track record. So this was this was a situation where the mayor of Chicago, the third largest city in this country, went out of her way while people were around <laughs> filming yeah. to like berate this person about how much the union and her and she were wrong about what, you know, not endorsing this Cook County judge who's also been on the bench for many, many, many years. And um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's quite a, you know, it's, it's definitely not a, you know, we, they go low, we go high type of attitude. It's like, yeah, well, not leaving no. any moles on whacked. Listen, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, when Greg was on my show, we talked about it, so I don't want to re go over it, but it's pretty, uh, I, I, I didn't have to deal with it. I thought it was a pretty funny story. Got mad at Greg uh, and let him have it. And she was totally in the wrong, in my humble opinion. And he was totally in the right. And she apologized. Right. So she is capable of, Greg, if she goes too far to apologize. So we got to give her that. Um, no, and I'm, I'm not, you know, um, the mayor's an intelligent person. She's uh, she's um, she's an intelligent person. She's a tough person. She she believes in in she has very strong values around the things that she has values about, you know, obviously um, sometimes I write things about how she doesn't fall, live up to them all the way. And then they get mad at me uh, <laughs> when I, when I say that, you know, she's got bad feelings towards CTU. She has bad feelings towards CTU. I mean, what, what can you say, you know, and, and she doesn't, um, you can see sometimes where every once in a while at a news conference, she gets asked a question about um, something where, she's in the wrong or or the premise is about something negative that she said or did or that that's that's going on and she starts off and she's like oh yeah no that's not true and then proceeds to to more or less confirm the gist of the story 
Uh, but you know, she starts with the defensiveness because it's just it's just her personality. She's she's defensive, and she's um, and when she's defending herself, she punches, and that's just something that uh, that's just something that is part of the dynamic. Yeah. Well, I want to ask another question. Um, where somebody brought this up in the chat, and everybody who's watching, uh, we're gonna get to the questions really soon. But um, somebody's pointing out that they think that the mayor. Uh, believes that students will fall farther behind if not in school. And Greg, you mentioned earlier that you do believe that she is genuinely concerned about, you know, children's learning and putting them in the best position to have the best possible, you know, educational experience. But something Ben and I were discussing earlier uh, today, or maybe it was yesterday, was that, you know, there's a set there. Perhaps this there's this is kind of a cynical idea, but. Is, it, is she also, do you think she's also motivated by, you know, the co political consequences of having horrible educational attainment um, for kind of a, going on a year plus? And is she worried about people leaving the city of Chicago as a result of this situation with the closed schools? I mean, I feel like in Chicago, every time anything happens, somebody's yelling about how it's going to cause people to leave Chicago. So... And, and people are in fact leaving Chicago. I mean, I think the data, the last data that came out was like Illinois was in the top two states in the country that has lost, continued to lose population. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious what both of you think about that. I mean, is, is part of her motivation just like this restaurant reopening, uh, which a lot of people are saying is totally absurd, uh, but seems to be motivated by her fear that businesses are gonna leave the city. Um, is part of the motivation to try to get the school open, schools open, because she's worried about further population loss. So, Yana, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just like, uh, I think a broader, uh, you know, I'm not going to speak to the motives or not of the mayor, and we'll leave that to Gregory. But um, no, I, I would say that I think that the fears about what remote learning is doing for Chicago students is real. Um, you know, so I do really want to say that I think that, um, again, like special education students don't get a lot of their needs met. I think remote learning is a lot better right now than it was a year ago when it essentially started or in March when it started with basically no real planning for this eventuality. So I think it's in a better place, but I think it still doesn't meet the needs of a lot of students, especially young learners who have been the first to go back. Um, so I think that that is a real concern. Um, I think it is also and so I, th I think I would just start there. I think it's also true that a lot of students have disengaged. A lot of students um, have not replied to the survey. A lot of students have just not come to school at all. So I think the questions, you know, this is maybe less about the numbers in the district more broadly, but the question of like, what is happening to the education for students in Chicago um, as they are only learning remotely uh, is a really big and a real and an urgent question. I think that the issue that has, I think that that rubs up against is um, that I think some families are seeing the choice as one between education and safety. And I think in a lot of Chicago's communities that have been hardest hit, where a lot of people have um, you know, an uncle, their parent, their family who has, has been um, like maybe died from COVID or has been really sick, I think it, the weighing of um, learning loss, or even you know, a report came out showing that there's higher instances of depression versus the risk of loss of life. That's just a different type of calculus, and I think all of these really heavy questions are um, are like real factors in this in the question about reopening. 
Yeah, and you know, as far as um, you know, uh, I don't like the word motive. I like you know what they've said and what they've done. You know, and what what. Um, and I, a plug for a story I wrote in 2019 after the teacher strike, I interviewed Jesse Sharkey, I interviewed Stacey Davis Gates, I interviewed Mayor Lightfoot to just talk about the 2019 strike. And, um, and Jesse Sharkey said something that I think about sometimes where he said that, um, I asked him during a long interview, I said, you know, one thing people say is that you guys went on strike to screw Lori Lightfoot because of the election. And, you know, if Preckwinkle was mayor, you wouldn't have done that. And, and, um, and what, um, what do you think it would have looked like if, if Tony Preckwinkle had become mayor? Would there have been a strike? Would there have been conflict? Or did you guys have a big uh, a deal, you know? And he said, you know, I actually think that there would have been conflict. He didn't straight up say, and I, I don't think I straight up asked, would there be a strike? But I said, but he said there would be conflict because the mayor represents the whole city. The mayor represents a wide variety of interests that they need to balance uh, in addition to the school system, whereas the union, uh, all they all, you know, and obviously we have the Chicago Teachers Union talks about affordable housing and policing issues. Uh, but at the same time, the union is the teachers union. They are there to advocate for their teachers and and learning and, and education. So um, it's not it's not really sinister for the mayor to consider stuff like population, stuff like um, the economy. And I'm sure she is, you know, and she has said as much when she says, you know, people are worried about about all the uh, turmoil with the union um, and they, they might not want to raise their kids here. Now, you know, where she where she's really um, where she, the part she doesn't mention that is important to mention is she she plays a role in the unrest, too in the labor unrest too, you know, she is the other party at the table. So it's not all, you know, oh, if, if there's conflict, if the union wants something and we don't want to give it to them, then if people in the city don't like it, that's because the union sucks. Well, it's like, well, there's two, there's, there's two parties here. So whatever disputes exist are between both of you. And it's not just, um, you know, and you can maybe, you know, I'm sure there are people watching this who are like, yeah, Lori Lightfoot, and there's people watching this that are like, yeah, CTU. And you can, you can hold those views, but the view is closer to the middle. Only uh, in right. Chicago. Uh, yes. Uh, and so, Greg, I got to ask you this question. Uh, I've been meaning to ask you a question uh, since the show started. I talked a lot about this on the show today. Uh, Yana, you can think of your answer because Greg's go first. If you, I'll ask it to you as well. But the mayor did something very interesting in one of the interviews that she gave. She, you know, she'd been going on these national TV shows, Craig. Uh, and um, I forget which one it was. It was Morning Joe. Uh, I think it was Morning Joe. Don't quote me, but I think it was Morning Joe. And um, uh, so she was talking about how Chicago is a labor city and she generally supports labor. And then she pulled something like I haven't heard since Rom, where she said, uh, you know, we got 40 unions at City Hall, I'm paraphrasing, Greg, uh, and I get along great with all of them, except for the for the right wing leadership of the Fraternal Order of Police at this union. And I'm saying, wow, <laughs> what a bold move by the mayor. She just likened the Chicago Teachers Union to the Fraternal Order of Police. And so like putting the message out, like I got these nutcases on the right and I got these nutcases on the left, and I'm just trying to look out for the middle, and what's a mayor to do? Uh, 
I got a lot of feelings about that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this just as a political tactic. Uh, how successful do you think is a political tactic? Is it and how accurate uh, in your humble opinion is it to uh, liken the Fraternal Order of Police to the Chicago Teachers Union? Go ahead. Well, it's probably not uh, very productive to compare CPU to the FOP. You know, there's a lot of teachers, um, you know, who, um, you know, like like there, there's people that are pro-police who are probably pro-FOP who are not pro Catanzara, who has been into trouble for stuff. It's just not, it's just not, it's probably not productive to, to put them on the same footing. I don't think anybody in, I don't think there are a ton of people in town that see it that way. It is interesting to watch how she um, navigates with unions, you know, like, like, um, you know, she uh, wasn't any union's first choice in the first round of the election. Obviously most of them joined uh her in the second round. She's had a good relationship with the Chicago Federation of Labor and Bob Ryder. She's had a good relationship with other unions. But then she does stuff that's interesting. Like um, like she gave an interview where she said, well, she keeps telling the, the teachers, you know, forget your forget your union. Go go tell your union, do the right thing. We celebrate you for not doing what your union <laughs> wants you to do. Which um, she didn't she didn't say it in those words, but she she gave a it was a, the exact quote was a special shout out to the teachers who showed up when they were told not to, which, you know, um, sounded like something Kristen McQuarrie would write in the Tribune editorial board pages. So that was, um, that was interesting where, uh, and again, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with, with Kristen or with the mayor or with, with, I, I know where you stand on this, Ben, but it's just, I tweeted her comment and I said, you know, it's not something you hear every day from the big city mayor, from a, a big city, blue city, democratic mayor. But, you know, the mayor has her own style and, and uh, you know, obviously it works for her. Uh, Yana, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think I, when I am, I covered labor for a long time. And I think when I, when I'm talking about these issues, I just feel like it is um, helpful to remind people, I think as Gregory did, that the union has a really specific role. It is standing up for its members, I think. Um, there are a lot of people who I think are put off, I think, by some of the, um, I guess, like by some of the back and forth and the tension of that. But I think in that, it's also helpful to just remember the history of the Chicago Teachers Union, that the current leadership came up in the fight against school closings, that they have kind of pioneered a new type of union organizing. And I think to understand them um, kind of singularly in that space and in the broader context of teacher unionization, rather than I think comparing them to, um, yeah, to other city unions who may also have people who are like loud on social media. Like I think that is like to me not the best context to to understand them in. Yeah. Um, let me ask you one more question, Yana, and then we'll we'll start with these audience ones. Um, thank you for everybody who's already been sending them in, and you can keep them coming coming in the chat. So how and this Greg brought this up as well about about this sort of um, the the kind of rank and file teachers and 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 the, these appeals that are being made like don't listen to the union just go in you know go in and, and do this for the kids. What's your sense of how deep the rank and file teacher buy-in is with the union leadership's kind of push not to go in before these you know before their various demands for safety are met. Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, 
the rank and file folks that I have talked to, just sort of their experience separate, I think of even what is happening at the top is um, that I think a lot of them feel very scared. A lot of them feel very unheard. A lot of them have a lot of questions that um, they haven't been able to get answered either at the district level or at the school level about just like what their day-to-day -day is going to look like. Um, and so I think from that space, they, uh, a lot of folks that I have talked to both I think are behind a push to make schools safer and to demand things that they see that would make schools safer. I think a lot of them are also nervous. You know, I think the threat of locking teachers out who didn't go into schools, I think really scared a lot of people. You know, usually before there's a strike, there is like, People make strike funds for months, you know, it's in the middle of a pandemic, a recession. I, I think there's a lot of fear of those consequences. And I think also um, like fear of being locked away from their students. So I, I, my sense is that there are a lot of people that are in support. And then I think even the folks, you know, I've talked to a lot of teachers who have gone in. I've talked to teachers who have had um, actually a lot of them work with older special education students, but they've had good experiences going into schools or in a classroom with one or two other adults and five kids and they're pretty happy to be there. Um, but I think things like the conversation around vaccinations and um, I don't know if you all heard about this, but there were some teachers, I think quite a large number of teachers were sent a code, asked to sign up and then their appointments were canceled. Like, I think they feel that that I think is pushing some of them. I think that feels really disrespectful. Um, and I think that is even aligning a little bit on the fence. Um, to take, I think, more extreme steps to win an agreement than they might otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, All right. that's an, if, if I could just uh, on that, yeah. you know, it's, uh, you would know better than I do about teachers, but, but you know, they did vote, I think it was like 71%, um, and it wasn't all the teachers, and, you know, uh, actually, Jesse got into it on Twitter a little bit with Nader from the Sun-Times, who Nader pointed out that it was a lower figure than they're used to, and Jesse pointed out some things, and they were they were going back and forth about it. I think um, I don't feel like every teacher is like um, we need to be back tomorrow and and screw you. You know, we need to be. Um, and I also don't feel like they're they're we don't we don't ever want to return. I, I don't think teachers don't ever want to return. I think teachers want to get back and be safe. But the uh, uh, but that's been one of the interesting calculations that the mayor has had to make about you know. If we if we call them back, how many are going to come back? And obviously, it hasn't been enough to um, to proceed with the lockout because enough of them will follow their union. Even people who don't necessarily agree are going to follow along with what the union, what, what the vast majority of their members do, because that's solidarity. That's the point of being in a is a union. Is if seventy percent of you agree on one thing and thirty percent don't, you don't say, "Well, screw it, I'm coming in anyway," uh, you know, because you know. That, that that's uh, that's just not the way it works. Yeah. One more word, Yana. Yeah, I think um, just on that, I think like some of the numbers that are helpful to keep in mind as we think about this is yes, seventy-one percent of eighty-six percent of teachers who actually replied to the resolution. So I think that's like a lower percentage even. Um, did vote in favor of the resolution. Also high school teachers right now, it doesn't seem like schools will open for high school um, students at all this year. So I think that is asking a lot of members to take uh, to take a real risk for, um, for a situation that they're not going to be in themselves possibly really until the fall. So I think there is a divide there. And I think that that is a really big, a really big part of what we're seeing.
Okay, so let's grab some of these questions. Um, make, make sure this isn't like a mayoral press conference. Is, uh, let's see, is, so we have a question from Percy. Is there any clear data or investigation into the question of why, of why CPS and the mayor claim schools are safer? There was a CDC study, but does it elaborate on why schools are supposedly safer? So why is, why is the city and, and Lori, why are they claiming this? So I, I'll just put out a few things. And again, this is not um, like I'm not an expert on any of this. I think a lot of the studies of schools compare them to other workplaces. Um, so the they say that schools are safer than um, like other. I'm trying to I, I can actually look up the study now. But, you know, I think that that is like one one case in which People say that schools are safe. So this study that the city put out that looked at Catholic schools compared that to other workplaces in the city. Um, I think the other reality is that where studies are done and what uh, my understanding is that what community spread looks like in those areas impacts what it will look like in an individual school. So there was a study that came out but looked at schools in rural Wisconsin where the situation, which I mean has had really high rates, but where um, the number of students whose parents are essential workers and questions like that might look really different. Uh, I think the thing that the um, school district and folks have been saying is like with proper mitigation measures, schools are safe. Um, so obviously there's like an absolute there, but also that is like if all students wear masks, if all students socially distance, you know, if especially people who work with special education students and young learners are able to keep a six foot distance from them. I think in some cases I've heard that that works in some cases and even in school, like the, a school visit that I did, I think that there is um, like what the hope is that that looks like and then what the reality of that often can look like on the ground so that um yeah. yeah. And there's still like so much that we don't know about about what will happen, you know, what how the virus is spreading w among children. I mean, I just saw a study right today uh, that came out about uh, based on data out of Wuhan that ch little children are apparently like 60 percent more likely to spread the virus than adults over 60. So even though that's the the adults over 60 are are the sickest population the i guess as we're there's still so much we don't know about how this spreads and um again the key issue is that even though the kids themselves might be all right um if they're more likely to spread the virus if if they're more kind of contagious that uh puts not only teachers but also their families at risk um yeah and i just briefly to jump back i mean i think that the um you know janice jackson has said this is not a zero risk proposition that like leaving your house involves some risk around COVID-19. I think that the, um, you know, kind of the pendulum of that argument is what is the risk that folks are willing to, to take or consider or how much can they mitigate that risk to meet some of these concerns about learning loss, um, to meet some of these concerns about students who are completely detached from the system. So that's where I'd kind of show the bigger picture. Uh, okay, Frank is asking, what is the likelihood that at some point the mayor will do to Janice Jackson, Jackson what Emmanuel <laughs> did to Brizard? JC uh, Brizard, that's before anybody's time. I think yeah, can you please, uh, okay, what, let me first read you the question and then can yeah. you please explain who that is? So, All what right, is the likelihood? 
what what is the likelihood that at some point the mayor will do to Janice Jackson what Emmanuel did to Brizard, blame her and dump her because it becomes expedient to do so? Ben, who is who is all right, JC Brizard. I think Gregory might know this because he uh you probably were in high school when this was going on, Greg. But uh, uh Mayor Rahm Emanuel, uh in his infinite wisdom, after he was elected mayor of the city of Chicago, after the voters uh the city of Chicago decided to elect a man who knew nothing about Chicago as their mayor, uh brought in a gentleman named Jay. I'm sorry, that editorial comment. I apologize, gentlemen and Greg. Uh and I and I apologize to the citizens of Chicago for voting. One more time. time. Still watching this show. Heck of a job, voters. Uh, but anyway, in, in 2011, he brought in J.C. Brizard from Rochester, I want to say, uh, to run the city of Chicago. He did a national search and said, this is the most qualified man I could find to run the uh, public schools of Chicago. Uh, J.C. Brizard knew nothing about the city of Chicago uh, and was not a very astute political player. And, and um, the way Rahm ran the city, you had to be an astute political player. Uh, uh, the uh, school strike happened while J.C. Brizard was uh, the uh, superintendent. Rob, by the end of the school strike, had already lost, you could tell he lost confidence. I want to say, Greg, I don't know if you, I think Barbara Bird Bennett was already getting ushered to the front of the line. And, you know, it's like the, it's like the Kremlin. You know what I'm saying? Like you could tell who was in the old days of the Soviet regime. You could tell like who was like in with the mayor by where they were positioned at a press conference. And uh, so you could see that uh, JC had really fallen out uh, and as soon as it was convenient, Rob <laughs> threw, threw out J.C. Brizard uh, and brought in Barbara Bird Bennett. I would have to say uh, that was even a worse appointment, uh, you know, than J.C. Because say what you will about J.C. Brizard, but he, at least he never uh, set up a scam in which his pals were getting $20 million contracts uh, in, in promise for a kickback. I think so, we can all agree that, that – uh being not great at your job or not meeting your boss's standards is not as bad as stealing from the children of Chicago. That is correct. We agree. Uh, Do you think it's likely that Janice Jackson might face the same fate? I mean, it seems to me that she she's kind of fulfilled most of the mayor's expectations. It's pretty pretty interesting to think about the politics of it is you fire people when a problem gets bad enough that that, you know, uh, the mayor can't fire herself. I guess she can, but she's not going to. Uh, they don't typically do that. Uh, so you have to fire someone. I don't know that, um, I don't think she, I don't think Janice Jackson is in trouble with the mayor. Um, you know, the mayor has been pretty, um, pretty, uh, you know, where the mayor stands is where CPS stands. So, you know, it, it'd probably be unfair to blame Janice Jackson for anything because they seem to be in pretty much lockstep. And actually sometimes when, uh, when, they've been trying to soften the mayor's image or when it looks like they're trying to soften the mayor's image, they've had uh, uh, Jackson come out and be the hard swinger, you know, like, like uh, last Friday, the mayor came out swinging extremely hard on CTU. Um, The next time they came out, you know, uh, the mayor was nicer and Janice was swinging harder, you know, and good cop, bad cop routine. Yeah. You know, Janice Jackson doesn't get elected by the voters. Mayor Lightfoot does. So, you know, if somebody's got to swing the hatchet. So but um, I don't uh, you know, any politician will fire somebody when they become an inconvenience. And I don't I don't get a sense that Janice Jackson's in trouble with that. Yana. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have that sense either. And I will also say that um, 
Janice Jackson was a teacher, was a school's principal. I've heard people speak with her um, about her with a lot of respect, I think, um, even folks who are sort of on the other side, I think especially compared to some of the school CEOs, particularly under Rom. Um, and I think what, one other dynamic that has... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that bar's pretty low, Yana. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, it, is, it is where it is. Um, and I, one other dynamic that I will say that has been interesting in, is in some of the latest CPA or CTU press releases is that they are saying that actually they are in agreement with Chicago Public Schools and that it is actually their Chicago Public Schools boss, i.e. the mayor's office, um, that they feel like is a um, kind of an impediment to a deal. So I, I don't know how seriously to take some of some of that and is some of sort of the back and forth swiping that comes out in pressers, but it's been an interesting dynamic to watch. Okay, Madeline is asking, is Lori's aggressive tactics in CPS reopening indicative of her not running for reelection? It seems Whoa. to me that it's indicative <laughs> of her running for reelection, yeah. these aggressive tactics. I don't know, what do you all think? Uh, short answer, no. Um, the, the, um, last I spoke to her about it and I asked her that, uh, in May and she, she was running for reelection. Um, I, I think, I think her aggressive tactics are because that's who she is, you know? I think you're absolutely right, Greg. And, uh, I, I, I can't imagine, uh, Lori not running for real. I know we got used to that with Rom where he didn't run for reelection, but that was after, I mean, uh, did run, so yeah, yeah. It's. I feel like she's there's there's a lot lower in she could fall in terms of to get to the point of where Rob was when he decided not to run in for a reelection. Yeah. yeah, you know the the one um and and it's not about rumors starting because the mayor has been clear she wants to run for reelection. It makes sense. She's a first term mayor. All of that stuff. Um, COVID and civil and last year's civil unrest and the crime is a brutal job. You know, it probably feels like she's lived 12 years already. You know, I feel like I've lived like 12 years and three terms uh, in just the past year. Uh, so, you know, she is a human being, right? I'm sure she gets tired. I'm sure she, uh, but but um, to the extent that anyone's wondering, you know, I haven't heard anything about, oh, the mayor's not running for re-election. And I don't think there's anything to that at mm. this time. Okay, Jeff has a question that I actually, I wanted to bring up as well. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, Yana, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. So Jeff writes, yesterday, the New York Times published a story about how long like how longstanding lack of trust and big differences in mobility within public education mediate black families' decisions with reopening. I actually have a, a quote from the story that basically sums up the problem this way. School closures have hit the mental health and academic achievement of non-white children the hardest but many of the families that education leaders have said need in-person education the most are the most wary of returning. And so Jeff wants to know, and so do I, what does this dynamic look like in Chicago? Um, is it pretty much the same type of story? Um, yeah, I think that's, it's a very, um, I think there are like really specific reasons related to Chicago that I think a lot of like black and Latinx families do not, um, trust the school system to keep their students safe in this moment. And I think, but I think that that is a real dynamic. And I think that is um, some, not all, certainly. I think some folks have said remote learning works for them, but I think that is a lot of what we're seeing in um, the fact that disproportionately white families 
are choosing to go back and that the vast majority of the district is choosing to stay remote. And I think to name just a few, um, you know, obviously the school closings, mass school closings under Rahm Emanuel, those wounds are still so real. And I think even when there was talk about closing schools to um, to open a new school in North Lawndale, when that happened in Englewood, like I, talking to people, a lot of that is still feels really fresh actually and painful. So I think that is very real. Um, and then I think just the questions about both the facilities and then how students were learning. Um, you know, I recently found out that there are, I think some like more than 40 schools in Chicago that have not been teaching phonics to students. So they, students have not been learning to read with science-based curriculum. So when that's already happening in your school, um, you know, you can hear the district say, we promise your kid will be safe. We put millions of dollars into ventilation and hand sanitizer, um, but your experience is really not of having even like the basic needs that a school is, like the basic things a school is supposed to do delivered. Um, I think that really affects how, yeah. how, we're seeing, how we're seeing families. Act. And even in the best of times, like it's, you know, when th there was no reason for the school district to mess up with its contracting so badly that there were elementary schools that had like rat infestations and just like, you know, total lack of janitorial services and, the you know, teachers had to let investigative reporters in to actually document and photograph this when there wasn't a pandemic going on, when there wasn't a huge shortfall in, in, in the city budget due to that pandemic. So it seems like uh, if the school district can't provide safe and secure and clean schools when there's not a, a global crisis going on, it's no wonder that folks are wary that they'd be able to adequately do that when everyone's health is on the line. There, um, there's an interesting conversation here between two uh, folks in the chat. Uh, Julie was asking, is the city looking at how Catholic schools have handled the pandemic? And Mary responded, yes, most of the reopening is based on Catholic schools, but CTU argues that they aren't comparable. So what, what, can you actually talk a little bit, Yana, about what is happening with the Catholic schools and how come CTU is claiming it's not comparable? Yeah, so Catholic schools have been open since the fall. Um, they are the um, probably like the biggest like other district that has been open in Chicago. Um, they are not only, but I think there are like a number of working class families that are not white that also go to those schools. So the uh, school district put forward a study um, of COVID spread in Catholic schools over a month long period as one of the main kind of like research, the Chicago Department of, it was the Chicago Department of Public Health put that forward as sort of one of the main arguments to say that schools are safe. Um, and that that is kind of like a complicated study to look at, as I think any of this is. I think what is useful to know there is, again, that they compared relative safety in schools to other workplaces. And also that um, they said that um, that of the cases, some of them were happened. So basically, some of the people were in school buildings when they were contagious, and in some cases, they were not. So it didn't look at like everyone who was connected to the school who at any point had had COVID. Uh, the union and other folks have raised concerns that um, Catholic schools are just like not a good comparison because maybe they're smaller because families might do different kinds of work to um, the Chicago schools where a lot of people's parents are likely to work outside the home. Um, and I think also just said that 
the demands of students are just really, really different populations. Yeah, it is. It is a, um, as uh, as you said, it's complicated. It is a fair point the mayor brings up when she compares uh, other schools in the region and other schools, other school districts, you know, same as when CTU points out other school districts, you know, there's, there's all sorts of comparison points. It's, um, as somebody who, you know, I grew up, I went to, uh, I went to a pretty good newer high school. I went to the Ag School in Mount Greenwood, actually. It's a bus train and bus from a little village to Mount Greenwood every day. Uh, but, um, but I went to a much older school in Little Village, which Salcedo on 24th and California. Uh, and so these were two very radically different schools, you know. Um, I remember the first time I went into a big suburban wealthy school district and a big nice Catholic school. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, like, uh, and, and so I think, uh, there's reason to be skeptical of Catholic school comparisons, but there, but it is also fair to bring it up and compare because it's in the region, you know? So, um, so it's a fair point that the mayor makes. Yeah. Let's also not forget this point. And, uh, the uh, public schools of Chicago, uh, have a, a union. And so teachers get a say. And the Catholic schools of Chicago don't have a union. And so the teachers don't get a say. And so when uh, teachers go back to school, I remember this from the first uh, strike. Uh, and I, Juan Rangel, Ooh. who's a name long forgotten Ooh. in the city of Chicago. That's what I'm good for, Greg. I come, Like, let's go back in time. I'll remember pe- names of people. I'm like, who's that? Well, he was the head of UNO, which was, at the time, uh, one of the a thriving charter school that with deep contacts with Mayor Rahm and Michael Joseph Madigan, uh, and they were well protected, and money was getting set aside so they uh, could build their universe. And the teachers went on strike. And Juan Rangel, who was the head of uh, UNO, had a press conference downtown, and he goes, you know, the public schools may be on strike, but UNO's schools are open. We're not on strike. And I'm like, well, I know nobody asked any UNO teacher ever what he or she thought about their salary, about Juan Rangel's salary, about wh- how the money was spent, about how their curriculum was divided. So teachers, that's part of what you get when you're in a union. And I'm saying this as a big union supporter. Uh, and... Also, um, Maya's pa- compatriot in organizing a union at the the reader, and you get a say when you're in a union. And so I'm all, I always get a kick out of when when Lori Lightfoot or anybody goes, "Well, I didn't hear anybody complaining when the when this Catholic schools open." I go, "Cause nobody ever asks a Catholic school teacher what he or she thinks. They're not in a union." So that's my general response to that. That's a fair point. And one thing, um, it, it is a pretty unique dynamic. You know, teachers unions are strong to varying degrees throughout the country. The CTU is one of the strongest in the country. And they're one of the, uh, they probably are the boldest. I'm not sure there are a lot more bolder unions, you know, and I'm, I'm not using that word favorably or unfavorably. I'm just saying they're a union that is bold. You know, there's a, there's a compelling argument to be made that the union strike in 2019 was illegal and they did it anyway. And, you know, they were bold enough to say, well, we're going on strike and we we don't think that anybody is going to take us to court and try to enforce that and we're going to do it anyway. 
Um, you know, and, and the reality is whether uh, Rom liked it or whether the mayor likes it, uh, the teachers have a strong union and, and they have to deal with it. You know, you can't just ignore them and uh, because you just can't ignore them. Well, and I, I think it's helpful just like right now, Acero, formerly UNO, uh, is unionized under the umbrella of the CTU's charter division. They um, did have a strike. Latin, I think in 2019, um, there are, there's been many strikes, so they're a little, a little blurry for me, but um, they are now working remotely and in their message to families, they said 60% of families chose to stay remote, so we're staying remote as well. Um, so I do think the question that that raises about like, do you know where all your students are? Do you know that all your students are learning? I think is a big question. Um, that I got to tell you, Anna, I, when, I, when you said that, I brought back memories when uh, uh, Uno organized. I was like, wow, you know, that that just was like a moment, a shift in Chicago uh, school politics, uh, the politics of charter schools, the development of charter schools. And, and when I see a CTU issue press releases talking about how charter schools are doing it so well. I just have to shake my head and like, man, up is down and down is up in the city of Chicago. You know, uh, just things have changed so much over these last 10 years. But one of the, the profound changes is what you just pointed out. Uh, more and more charter schools have gone union. Yeah, and I think it also, you know, just thinking about all this and this in kind of impossible bind that everybody's in uh, balancing safety and children's education needs, like, I think it also helps, uh, it, it's like helpful to remember that this country is in this position. Like this country with its total mismanagement of the pandemic with the Trump administration's failure to take advantage of the months of, of runtime they had to, to get ahead of the problem. Like it's, re I feel like it's revealing all of these kind of cracks in the social, in, in, in the social, not just social safety net, but just the basic functioning of this society and like providing education for, for children. These cracks are being revealed because the basic foundation just wasn't even there. Like so many other countries are not in a position now where they're having to choose between educating their children and keeping people safe. And I mean, you know, this is a very, very big country, which, which is difficult to manage. And it's all the different state governments are so bifurcated. But I just, you know, it's, it's like the political ramifications are going to be on the level of like one city, you know, one school district. There's um, you know, people will die. People will not be educated. People will like lose uh, socialization opportunities that are vital for their, you know, mental health. Uh, but but it's like this is the level at which national problems are getting solved, and we only have like dinky little local tools. So um, somebody actually was asking a question, zooming out a little bit to Springfield. Um, I, I also have a Springfield-related question um, after we go through this one. But uh, so Madeline's asking, thoughts on Lightfoot insisting on a provision to allow parent representation on an ESRB? Could you, Yana, maybe explain what this is about and share your thoughts? Yeah, so there's an elected school board bill um, that has been working its way through Springfield. It was something that the mayor um, initially was supportive when running um, when running her campaign, and things had since not been, but that bill, as it's moving forward, has 
change shape. And I think the latest effort is to bring parent representation on that. I think um, there is a big push for more school democracy in Chicago. Chicago also has local school councils at the school level. I think a lot of folks hope that an elected representative school board um, would give them more of a voice in decisions around how schools how schools are run. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I've been so deep in negotiations coverage. I don't have a sense of where people are standing on the parent representative issue. I do know there's a lot of other districts in Chicago where, um, yeah, where I think elected representative school boards both do offer real and increasing parent democracy. And I think especially around decisions like school police, and then in other cases become um, like really big and expensive races that um, I think bring in a lot of the things that are problematic about how elections are run more broadly. So, you know, and politicians oppose elected school boards and elected police accountability boards and stuff like that, because one, it takes, uh, it, it lets them make decisions and then you're responsible for them to a segment of the public that isn't as informed. Uh, even if there was an elected school board, they would still blame Lori Lightfoot for whatever's happening at the school. Uh, and two, you know, politicians are worried that somebody's going to use that platform to run against them and cause trouble for them. And, you know, um, so when they talk about having parent representation, you know, that's probably a sincere good faith type of thing, you know, uh, on some level. And there's also, you know, but the other reason politicians oppose it is because it creates problems for them as politicians. And, and kind of to add on to that, the, my other question about the, what was ha what's been happening in Springfield is, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, and again, please correct and clarify if, if I'm not framing this correctly, but it was a the teachers got back their non-financial bargaining rights um, in as of the Langdark session in Springfield. So back in when the strike was happening in 2019, there was this big conversation about the fact that the teachers were talking about, you know, we're striking, we're striking not because of our pay, but because there's no nurses in the schools. We uh, are lacking resources. There's no counselors, all of these non non paycheck and insurance related issues. So. And people were speculating then that, you know, this was a, uh, you know, an illegal strike because they were walking out for those reasons. Now, is it correct to say that they would be able to strike for on those non-economic issues? So the bill has been passed, but it hasn't been signed by Governor Pritzker. Um, so there's this signature that would be needed to put that, like, write that bill into law. And I think in that case, it would really change a lot of the dynamics um, at the bargaining table. The union has also been, has like a number of unfair labor practice suits at the Illinois Educational Labor Relations Board. And the question around each of those is what they are allowed to bargain over and what they are, what the city must, or what the, the district must bargain with them over. And this bill would kind of, um, just like really shift the landscape of all of that. But as of now, the governor hasn't signed it. And I think at a press conference last week, um, didn't respond to the comment of when that would happen. Yeah, you know, C CTU uh, bargains over stuff it's not supposed to bargain over now. Imagine uh, <laughs> what, what they would do uh, under it, you know, and, and that's not a, a criticism or a praise. It's just, it is what it is, you know? And so, but they would, um, you know, obviously they welcome it because it, it takes away any ambiguity. Yeah. Obviously, um, you know, Mayor Lightfoot decided she wasn't going to try to sue in 2019 uh, to stop the strike because that would have been a political nightmare, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, in this case, they, uh, they, um, 
threatened to lock them out and they blinked. They walked away from that threat, you know, despite making it repeatedly and very yeah. strongly. Uh, probably because, uh, you know, the, the strike would be a nightmare, you know. So uh, the union, though, would not be going on strike over. Uh, they'd be going over. They wouldn't be going on strike over reopening. They would be going on strike over the lockout, which is another right. labor practice. And if yeah. Kipper signs the bill, which I would guess he doesn't sign until this is all over, right. probably because he doesn't want to make the mayor mad, or yeah. I should say possibly because he doesn't want to make the mayor mad. Uh, Greg, I got to ask you this this question. It's very political. We talk about this one on the show all the time. Uh, Governor Pritzker's role, and we I, I I'm smiling just thinking about it because he, you know he. We do we do daily updates on what Governor Pritzker says about uh, the imp the impact of this or that on the pandemic, and you know he he's watching every single statistic very closely and following us. That and man, it, he's as quiet as a church mouse when it comes to Chicago and the public schools. Well, Chicago, what what city? I never heard of Chicago. Uh, so there's obviously some political dynamic there that you kind of got at about the mayor not uh the governor not wanting to cross a line with the mayor why don't you go into that a little bit explain the political dynamics between uh governor pritzker and mayor Lori Leifer, where he's so quiet about chicago well an instructive story was when kim fox came out and said that anjanette young that denying anjanette young was the video that denying the video of the raid to anjanette young was wrong and the mayor said i don't know why she's talking about my business she's got problems of her own you know, and that's what the governor generally wants to avoid when he when he stays out of that stuff. I know that, um, you know, because they've gone back and forth. You know, the mayor didn't want to close down schools when the governor closed them down last March. The mayor did not want to um, uh, shut down the St. Patrick's Day parade when when the governor wanted to. There were other stuff. The mayor wanted him to reopen restaurants in May. Uh, yeah. She she. Um, talk about it just about every day for a month until he finally reopened indoor dining. And then, uh, you know, she, she said he shouldn't close them down when he closed them down in October. And the governor has always um, taken a very tactful response and not been critical. Um, you know, they've, I think they have both um, from talking to people in both their worlds, neither one of them wants to be like de Blasio and Cuomo in public where they're talking shit about each other straight up versus just throwing a little bit of shade and and are and disagreeing. But you know, Pritzker's not um it's interesting to watch because he's um he's he's like he's not a bomb thrower in that way and he certainly understands and he's he's correct to be wary of getting into a fight with any mayor of Chicago. It generally doesn't work out great for the governor. Um, and then you know Lori Lightfoot knows how to throw down. So do you do you do you want to um criticize her and then you know she's stabbing you in the eye you know i don't, I don't know <laughs> if she wants that uh um, that's stabbing in the eye what a thought <laughs> okay so mike girardi friend of all things ben jarofsky yeah, is asking a good girardi. question and i think a lot of people are probably wondering this including myself but what are other cities doing and why do we always act like the rest of the world doesn't <laughs> exist when we when we're, no they're all going through the same thing uh, is there something that we can learn from elsewhere where this stuff is being handled better? Let me just give a shout out to Mike Girardi before uh, Yana and Gregory answer that. Mike Girardi uh, is a great rock and roll musician, and he writes a lot of music that we get to play on our podcast. So, folks, 
this is not just some ordinary citizen asking a question. This is Chicago's Neil Young asking a question. Okay, go ahead, Yana. Um, yeah, I think that the context on the ground is so different in so many places. New York has reopened in some to some degree. Um, there ha- the city did come to an agreement with the teachers union there. However, the agreement that they came to actually left school short of a lot of staff. Um, and then what it has actually meant to open schools has been helped by having a huge amount of testing availability. Um, you know, even reporters that I know before they go into schools can just walk over, get a rapid test and walk right in. That's a really different situation to what I think some of that looks like in Chicago. Um, there's definitely a friendlier relationship between the between the mayor and the union, but actually reopening has still been really complicated and schools are closing all the time because of cases. Um, in Los Angeles, where definitely the teachers union there has actually sort of historically taken a page out of the common good bargaining approach of Chicago. Um, they've had such a like raging, terrible, um, terrible number of COVID cases. I'm sure people are aware is that the LAUSD is not even planning on opening and the mayor has said that there's not a plan to do that until there are vaccines for teachers. So it feels really specific depending, I think, on what the experience, I think even back to the spring, what the experience of COVID has been like. Um, But I definitely feel like there is a reason that so many people nationally are watching Chicago because I think for a really long time that what Chicago can win in its labor fights and how it does them and how far it's willing to go to get kind of, especially some of those broader social issues has been a model, um, has been a model nationally. And so I don't think that's any different now. I think we're at the forefront of the intensity of the labor fight around reopening. And I think what what actually comes out of this, I hope there's an agreement. Um, when this agreement happens, what comes out of it, I think will be, uh, will I think have a lot of national resonance as well. Well, and for Mike, you know, the reason we, we are talking about Chicago is because Chicago's number one, but uh, we, we do, <laughs> I do think that the mayor and uh, um, both the mayor and CTU point to stuff that is happening in other places. I think, you know, you know, no, I don't think anybody is looking at it in a vacuum, but, you know, like with any arguments, you can cherry pick something to make your point, which I'm sure both sides do. Um, but, you know, Chicago is pretty unique insofar as we, you know, I'm not sure how many other cities have a union as strong as, uh, as, as ZTU that oppose the mayor and the mayor has, is um you know and the mayor's a pretty unique political personality right she's uh uh she was involved with government but she was essentially a private citizen a well-off private citizen uh not super well off but a well-off private citizen who ran for mayor because she wanted to do some stuff and somehow got elected and uh is not the standard politician you know um rom would be doing everything differently for a variety of reasons you know like um the mayor so so we're a different type of model too, but but even within that context, people are looking at other places to see what makes sense. And and I don't think it's fair to say CTU and CPS aren't. Mm. Yeah, well, I think we're almost out of time here and it looks like we got through basically all the questions. Um, thanks to everybody who, um, who, who posted. I wanna just ask both of you guys one more thing, you know, what has it been like to do your jobs in the context of uh, this pandemic? And especially um, in the context of the fact that when these press conferences happen, when news is breaking about about what the next step is gonna be, like you guys can't all be 
they are asking your questions. And one of the things I've been following on Twitter is just the fact that like every day the reporter at the press conference is a pool reporter and it's very often seems to be somebody from one of the TV stations and it's not people who are necessarily expert education reporters. And it seems like a lot of questions aren't getting asked and therefore not getting answered. So I'm just wondering about the politics of the way that the press corps is being treated around this issue and how you're navigating that. Great question. Yeah, I mean, just um, I think broadly to me, you know, sort of speaking to what you said earlier, Maya, schools are like one of the last social institutions that like reliably exists in American society. It's why Chicago schools have been open offering meal services essentially through the entire pandemic. They play this super important role. And I think in um, kind of with that in mind, um, I think deserve a lot of scrutiny and need to be really transparent because they play this super important role. Um, there has been like such a clamoring for information. And I think sometimes the school district has that, sometimes it doesn't. I think it's been a lot of digging. Um, the recent turn that has actually been really exciting is that a group of report of ed reporters, um, first to Chicago public schools and then to the mayor in recent in recent weeks said, you know, as all of this is going, it's changing really quickly. We need to have at least one of us in the room who knows this topic well and can push back and ask those questions. And I think that has really um, changed some of the ability to get to get answers on issues that are like changing so quickly. And I think the, you know, just speaking more broadly about like covering the beat in this moment, like so many parents are getting their information about whether there will be school tomorrow through the news. You know, I think there has been a lot of parent organizing that has actually risen up like sort of um, adjacent to this labor dispute, because I think for a lot of families, the questions of how they get their voices heard and get their needs met is like a really, a really open one. And so, yeah, I think the place of the press conference suddenly um, has reached heightened importance in this moment. Yeah, you know, and to give some, uh, um, so the mayor had a reporter uh, ad, and um, there was a, I don't want to beat up on a guy, but there was a bad performance last Friday where the pool reporter ended the press conference by saying, well, I have no more questions, and <laughs> and the 10 p.m. news is about to start, so we should get out of here, and I think that was really pissed off. Because I don't think he'd even asked any of the questions that the that the education reporters. So I um I actually emailed the education reporters and I said um, I'm going to ask the mayor's office to make sure that you know I'd like us to to do a unified front. Let's ask the mayor's office to let one education reporter in at least for these. And the mayor's office agreed, and they deserve some credit for that. Um, I think that. Um, Obviously, that's not ideal, uh, but COVID is real too, and so there's there's different issues, there's different views in the press corps, obviously of of what it is. I know sometimes there are pool reporters, uh, TV pool reporters, who do a great job, and there are some that are terrible. And that was true. Um, that was true in um, in person too. You know, Ben, you've been to a lot of news conferences. You know, sometimes like. Mike Flannery comes up and he gives a speech and then yeah. he asks the question and it's usually a good question, but he gives a speech before he asks the question. <laughs> yeah, uh, different reporters have different styles and, and there's yeah. not and, you know, and there's obviously reporters I roll my eyes when I hear their question and sometimes uh, there's and that, that's all part of the game, right? Like like um, it is a poverty foul to beat up on another reporter for their question because you also don't know um, what their editor made them ask, you know? Yes. That happens too. So yes. you might have a dumbass question and it's not because the book is <laughs> dumbass. Uh, 
But, I think reporters should say that, Greg. Uh, <laughs> Madam Mayor, this is my dumbass editor's question, okay? I got to ask it, but don't blame me. What do you it think? That might be something to do. But, but it, is, it is hard because there are times that, you know, um, you want to press, you want to follow up, and you can't because it's disparate. But that also happens in, in, in normal time press conferences. But, um, you know, uh, we reporters and journalists can be pretty self-absorbed sometimes, but I am always uh, extremely proud of my colleagues and competitors uh, who have had the tough task of trying to tell these stories while staying healthy and not getting anyone sick. And so, um, you know, everybody's trying their best. And I think, uh, I think, I think uh, that's crucial. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you to everyone who showed up tonight. I'm posting a, um, a link in the chat for the First Tuesday's Facebook page. Uh, that's the best way to keep track of when our next show is going to be. We've been doing these bi-monthly, but um, we may be able to put on a show in March. Uh, so keep your eye out as well for uh, for any news on there. Follow us on the Facebook page, and this is um, that's how you'll find out about the next show. Of course, you can follow all of us on Twitter, except for Ben, who you have to call on the phone if you want to talk to him. But uh, Ben's show, uh, the Ben Jarofsky show, is on is broadcast by the Chicago Reader. It's on YouTube and on the Chicago Reader uh, website every day. This show will not be posted for people to watch later without paying five dollars to support the hideout but it will be dropped in the um in as an audio show in ben's uh podcast feed where can people find that ben well uh, the other qu real question is when uh and i think it'll be this sunday and just that last name is spelled j-o-r-a-v-s-k-y and the first name is spelled b-e-n you look it up on google bada boom bada bing the ben jarofsky show and i'm going to tell everybody check out that interview i did with greg pratt it was totally it was all about the tribune the future of journalism uh greg if i could pat the two of us on the back i thought it was a hell of a conversation so i and urge everybody to check that I one out I also dropped the link for the Chicago Reader store in the chat, chicagoreader.com slash store. That's where you can find my book. That's where you can find our other colleagues' books. That's where Ben's book will soon be. That's where you can buy your reader swag, your T-shirts, your masks, whatever you might need. Uh, you can also donate to the reader there. And thank you all again for everyone who paid five bucks to to come here and listen to us chat tonight uh, goes a long way to help the hideout. And thank you, Greg, uh, for joining us. Gregory Pratt can be found on Twitter at Royal Pratt, right? Yeah, and it's my middle name. It's not some weird English <laughs> or something I've got. Uh, so I'm dropping uh, Greg's Twitter handle in the chat, and uh, you can also find him in the Chicago Tribune. Uh, almost daily, sometimes a couple of stories on the front page a day. So look out for Greg's work. Yana can be found at Chalkbeat Chicago. It's an online platform. And also on Twitter at Yana Zur. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I've always just thought have, about it in my, in my mind. That's not like a real word. I started that uh, when I was in grad school and it is yeah, my name and a color I like. So um, <laughs> yeah. Is so thank blue? you all so much. Thank you for thank you for thank you to the hideout, the whole team here. We miss Timmy Tutton and his long uh, long speeches yeah, at the man. beginning of these shows. So hopefully uh, there won't be too more too many more of these online. But for now, this is what we've got to do. 
Thank you all for uh, coming coming through. Thank Take you. care, everybody.